Welcome in. My name is Ron Greenwald. This is the Ron Greenwald podcast. And this podcast is a lightning rod for informed decision making as you weave your way through what we call life. Life is going to have a lot of twists and turns, and we kind of use the term now improv, but we have guests that are going to give you tools to maybe reduce that improvisational role and give you some ideas of how you can leave a legacy now and then in the future. I am honored to have as my guest today, Andy Ragoni. Did I say that right, Andy? That's good enough. No, 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 no. I, I, Ragoni, right? Yep, yeah, Ragoni. Ragoni. Okay. He is the CEO and partner and co-founder of, here's another one, Pleiades, <laughs> like Pleiades Nonprofit Advisors, LLC. We're just here to make things difficult for you, Ron. Uh, <laughs> yes, Pleiades, that's correct. Pleiades. And Andy, tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about yourself so we can move and you can take a journey into what you're doing today. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's that can be a fairly long story, but I'll give the short version. Yeah, give us the uh, the uh, short version. Um, so yeah, so we started Pleiades. Uh, my business partner Kimberly Jatan and I, uh, we had known each other for probably about seven years prior to. I worked for a gift planning organization called Crescendo, and kind of cut my teeth in the gift planning space based on what I learned there. Um, and uh, so we started Pleiades in light of the fact that that we saw a specific area that nonprofits needed help with, and we felt like we could be able to fit that particular space well. Um, prior to being with Crescendo, I was in pastoral ministry as a pastor, serving as a pastor for probably the better part of 30 years. So at least in that nonprofit space as well, um, a little bit different when you're in the church world. But uh, but at the end of the day, it, it, there's some similarities, too. So, Andy, as someone who um, has um, I like to delve into that a little bit. How do you go from pastor to crescendo it was at the it was at the pastor to crescendo if you don't mind i have to delve into that yeah so uh as as a pastor i mean like any sort of organizational structure you're going to be having maybe a title that that says pastor but oftentimes people think of pastor as the main speaking individual maybe he's up front in, in front of people and that sort of thing but there's an entire staff that oftentimes goes with uh, a church that kind of grows in its sophistication. And in many cases, you'll have, you know, multi-staff sort of uh, church environments and if not, you know, mega staff environments. Um, mine was a, you know, a church that wasn't, I wasn't the lead pastor. I was an executive pastor there um, um, and functioning kind of in, in a similar role, perhaps. Uh, there's some, some overlap, of course, when you're just dealing with organizational structure and just dealing with, you know, on, on the payroll side or dealing with the uh, staffing side or dealing with the programmatic side. I mean, there's a lot of overlap in terms of how operations are overseen. So you go and then Crescendo comes to you and says, or he comes to you and says, I really would like you to take this on. And you have, you kind of have the personality to do that. Yeah. I mean, as far as my role with Crescendo and how that, um, 
started, I'm, I'm truly indebted to Charles Schultz. I've known Charles probably since 1999, I think. Um, so our, our relationship goes way back. And I didn't realize, you know, the, the giant that he was in the gift planning industry. Uh, I knew, you know, of his company because he and I, prior to coming on to Crescendo, he and I knew each other um, and would periodically meet and connect um, over coffee and just touch base on on different things rela- related to the church uh, environment because he was a part of our church, he and his, his wife, Artie. Um, and so the connection was there and it started there. I also was uh, friends with his son-in-law and daughter, uh, Kristen and Chris Jarda, who are both attorneys. And, and when I came on, were both the uh, senior executive VPs over at Crescendo. And so they were very instrumental in, in bringing me on board as well. So Crescendo, and then you, you and Kimberly start this company. How long has Pleiades, if I'm saying that correctly, am I, you're, you're cringing, so I must not be. No, 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 it's good. You're good. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm empathizing. Oh you're, empath- oh, you're empathetic to my inability to say the word. It's a constellation. Of, it's a constellation, by the way, is what it is. That's right. Yeah, real quickly on that side, just on the constellation right, side. Right, right. Um, we'll, we'll just kind of touch on that real quick. Um, so Pleiades is indeed a cluster of stars, and you can see about seven with the naked eye. But of course, once you put a you know telescope on it, you'll you'll see a much 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 larger and much more intricate um, tapestry there within within that star cluster. Um, but as far as how it works within our own you know perspective is that it was used for maritime sailors when they would start their sailing season because they would see the Pleiades beginning to emerge in the eastern sky at about five in the morning, four in the morning. And once they did, that was kind of like the all clear for them to go and start their sailing uh, season. The other thing that the Pleiades does is when they're looking at night navigation, which is of course a, a component of any sort of maritime sailor, uh, from years, you know, prior to instrumentation or, or compass for that matter. And they would use the Pleiades as a primary guide or at least one of the primary guides for latitudinal uh, direction finding. And so it's really kind of the idea of that navigation uh, tool that was used for maritime sailors. And so, of course, you know, the navigation tool for nonprofits, specifically in the area of gift planning. So let's go right into that transition. That was beautifully said in the transition. What is plan giving and what should nonprofits pursue and how should nonprofits pursue it properly? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that gift planning in its very essence is any sort of, of time and thought that goes into making a gift that is going to require some sort of plan and 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 benefit not only the organization but also benefit the donor and i don't know if i like that definition that just how i said it so maybe I'll, I'll say it one other way is when people have assets and they are maybe it could be like a rental property or it could be a stock portfolio or it could be a life insurance plan or it could be 
um, um, some sort of appreciated property. It could be personal property, like a nice, you know, ring collection or a car collection or, um, or a business interest. There are so many different ways that we as individuals will derive income from these sources. And there are streams of income that maybe we got into it just because we wanted to start investing, right? And we wanted to start thinking, okay, how can I make and generate some passive income or maybe even begin to create future dividend income that's going to come as a stream of regular income. The problem comes when you have a business or you have a property, let's say a rental home. Um, you know, I, I got into rental homes back in the early 2000s and discovered the roller coaster that they would present. And I discovered that I am not a big fan of being a landlord. That's just not you know, something I enjoy doing. Some people, great, but not for me. Um, that said, is now it's it's a good problem to have, but at the same time, it's a problem because when we bought the property back in 2001, my wife and I, we're now fast forward to 2024 and we now have a large capital gains that we have to contend with should we turn and sell the property. So when you start thinking in the world of planned giving, it is now joining philanthropy, but also helping on the tax benefit side. And so one of the things that's probably good to point out on that front is Congress made it possible, and they've done this through a series of, of, of steps that they had taken over the last hundred years, way back, as far back as 1915, um, to where instead of giving to the IRS in the form of taxation, and I wouldn't say it's exactly giving. Giving, it's not a giving, yeah. I, don't. I would just say burdened with the reality of paying taxes. Um, Congress has made it possible for you to bypass some of your taxation by giving philanthropically to some nonprofits or any public charity, a 501c3. So if I can give to my favorite nonprofit, and bypass my taxation towards the IRS, I'm a happier individual because it's really benefiting a cause that I believe in rather than giving to the government. So who's calling your firm is reaching out to whom? Who is your perfect client or who sure. who do you want me who do you want me to refer you to? Yeah. So any sort of nonprofit 501c3 that is probably at a certain level of sophistication. And what I mean by that is in the development shop of that particular nonprofit, there are directions that a development department has. There's best practices that a development department does. And usually when a professional development officer arrives on the scene, they usually have multiple things that they need to give attention to events. They have to do um, maybe an annual giving program. They have to do a gala, like an event. But they also have a number of other things that are front and center for them because many nonprofits, board of directors, are just saying, we need money in the door to fund our mission. What happens with gift planning, because gift planning gets a little bit uh, more technical and involved, it oftentimes doesn't happen right away. And so because of that, the convenience of money in the door is oftentimes where a lot of our nonprofits are thinking. The more 
sophisticated a giving program develops into, the more they begin thinking that, well, do you want money in the door now, which comes from a very small bucket of disposable income from a very few amount of donors who are going to give anything of size or substance, or do we want to tap into the wealth, which makes up of around 97% of all American income coming from various forms, whether it be a retirement plan, stock appreciation or portfolio or whatnot, and can we help people give from them while also solving their tax problem? So the people that look to come to us are going to be organizations that have at least one professional development officer who's a frontline fundraiser. And then they begin to now move into the reality of gift planning, which they know or they've heard that this is tough stuff to get into, but we're going to forge ahead and try to figure it out. And that's when they'll call us and do it. You're the, the strategic planner for long-term strategic planning? We certainly do lay out a plan. We do lay out a calendar. We do lay out, you know, um, kind of like the, the direction, but it's far more. We actually implement programs. So we are fractional gift planning officers that are working based on four levels of service to carry out the program in its entirety. And if you want to hire a full-time staff down the road for specifically for gift planning, great. In the meantime, you might want to use us. So give us some examples of what you've implemented on behalf of a nonprofit. Sure. Um, I can give you a number of examples in terms of, of, you know, uh, of clients themselves. Um, I'll take a homeless conglomerate out of Miami, Florida. We are national. And this homeless organization, which is a fairly large organization, they're kind of like, you know, the, the main homeless organization that, that Miami thinks of. And they've done a wonderful job of integrating themselves within the Miami community. And there's some really cool things that they've accomplished. <clears throat> that said, is they had one frontline fundraiser. She's a VP of, of development. And it's just her. And she does have a couple of support staff, somebody doing database management, somebody doing maybe some marketing and that sort of thing. But they had no idea about gift planning language, gift planning, gift structuring. Um, they had no idea how to, how to do that. They don't know in terms of how to what best practices look like in order to bring donors to a level of interest that they didn't know of before. And so they ended up bringing us on board. It was our first client and they took a chance on us, which is great. You know, I, I appreciate the fact that they took a chance on us. Well, you and do we, have, you do have the pedigree. Well, I mean, it helped going in, <laughs> um, but they did take a chance on us nonetheless. And so we will do all of the marketing on the gift planning side. And we work together with their Marcom individuals and we sent out anywhere between, and, and a lot of people get shocked when they hear this number, but about 25 to 30 touch points per year. We also then move people through a survey, through an estate planning seminar to a legacy event. And there's this momentum and traction that begins to be uh, developed in that period of time, usually about eight months. And ROI begins to show up at the end of this eight month period. And then it cycles through and then we do it again each and every year. Okay, so you are the, the marketing arm of a non-profit you're the strategic marketing you're the go-to guy but the biggest thing about marketing and this is very important is there's a lot of legal information and, and 
simplifying charitable tax law to explain to donors what they can do. They don't even know their options. And if they don't know what they don't know, then they're not going to go where they don't know. If they're advisors, like a professional wealth advisor or even an estate planning attorney, many of them never delve into the area of philanthropy. It's just not their space. And so consequently, they're not going to advise in several of the giving vehicles out there if they're not normally working with them. So consequently, people don't hear about it simply because there's nobody else telling them about it. So that's kind of the marketing component. But then it goes from there into donor activity where there's donor relations, where there's cultivation, where there's planting of seeds, where there's also providing solutions um, for different gift structures that might work for their case-by-case scenario. Are you act are you actively engaging with the donor? Or are you behind the scenes planting those seeds so that the frontline people are uh, yes, it just depends on what level you decide to hire us at. So if we are doing just marketing implementation, then we are the behind the scenes individuals and we'll work with the frontline fundraiser to have those conversations. If they want to bring us on at a comprehensive level, then that now allows for us to do joint visits and to actually structure gifts on their behalf of the organization. At our highest level, we're doing independent visits as representatives of the organization itself. So you have the knowledge, I mean, again, for people that, you know, again, Crescendo is something that only a nonprofit person would know in terms of what, you know, in terms of this listening audience, if you're not in the nonprofit world, Crescendo is not something they're gonna know in terms of your pedigree and your background to be able to bring that information, that full service information to the donor. For sure, yeah, the only way that I could possibly be doing what it is that I'm doing is is having that background in gift planning as well as you know the education and certified uh, in two different certification levels and and that sort of thing yeah without that I I couldn't do what I do so to go really into the weeds on this and I hope we don't lose the audience because they're going what like if somebody says that you know charitable remainder trust the old CRT world do you run the numbers like I'm 85. I'm not, but I'm, <laughs> I bring to you an 85-year-old you know, client who's got a rental property worth $2 million and she wants to donate it to her favorite and create a legacy at a charity and get an annuity on behalf of that property. Is, do I come to you to put that, pull that all together? Yeah, so, I mean, we'll certainly run the proposals for a CRT uh, or a charitable gift annuity. Um, When you're doing just on the side, when you're doing gift annuities in exchange for real estate, that gets a bit tricky. And there's some things that you have to be very mindful of and protective of the, of the nonprofit to make sure that they're not getting themselves into a bad spot. Um, But on the charitable remainder trust, simply because the trust is in itself, its own charitable entity, that that's something that is a little bit easier to manage. And so what we will do, we won't draft the trust, but we do outsource to individuals who will. And I've discovered, you know, just in the time that we've been doing this, that there are many who I would not want to have draft the trust with it because they just don't have that experience. And even though they're maybe, you know, phenomenal attorneys, that's just still at the same time, it's just not their scope 
of operation. And so there are individuals that we like to work with and and outsource to in order to now, you know, take up the ball or the baton and and actually uh, draft the trust and have it uh, appropriately managed. So let's take the, the scenario, which I think is pretty common. Uh, somebody is listening to this and goes, yeah, I would really like to, Andy, to talk to about that. Can I... I'm, you know, I'm Miss Miss Jones. Miss Jones calls you. Uh, would you go and please talk to my attorney, my estate planning attorney, who thinks this is a bad idea, or my wealth manager who thinks this is a bad idea, and not to say, hey, I'm going to try to convince them otherwise. I just want them. Do they understand? Do they understand what's their their objections are? Maybe they don't know. In many cases, that's exactly what it is. Maybe they've heard of it. Um, a lot of wealth adv- you know, advisors have heard of CRTs and, and they've, you know, kind of, but they've never necessarily worked with one. And so, again, they're just not comfortable in that particular space. And so because of that level of discomfort, they don't know how to advise in the appropriate way. The trick is with a lot of our professional advisors, again, they're very qualified and very good at what they do. They're just not in the space of philanthropy. And because they're not in the space of philanthropy, their goal for their particular client base isn't necessarily philanthropic in nature. But what happens if you do have a client that is very philanthropic in nature and would like to be able to understand these types of solutions that would otherwise not be available to them, you know, uh, should the advisor not necessarily provide that for them, that information. So, yes, there is a fair amount of education and we'll provide them with, say, a proposal. And, and you know, usually when you start off with a proposal, there's a lot of things you don't necessarily know about the donor because they may or may not necessarily disclose that to you. Uh, but that said is it can be a very helpful place to start, especially for a CPA or a financial advisor to see how this now begins to come into in the, in the frame. And so that ends up saying, oh, okay, I get that. That makes sense. Oh, there's value there. And eventually they just go, that's a really good idea. (laughs) And it just takes a while to get them there. I want to go on a little bit of a tangent because I've, you know, I've been in this space of what I do for 15 years of working with estate planning attorneys and wealth managers and estate administration. And I've heard every story from... (laughs) Every, sure. You can't even, I literally now have to, when I, when the state, when the attorney says, Ron, I want you to go change the locks on the home because I don't want the, the, the children, the beneficiaries. And these, these children are 60, 70 years old and they all hate one another. I actually sure. bring a secure, I have actually a gentleman who packs heat with me to be when I go to these houses nowadays, because I don't know what I'm going to be confronted with, but that's a diff, that's way different story. But my question is... How many 501c3s are there in the United States of America? I don't know if you have that. I mean, there are millions. Given your, you know, you have a 30-year, sounds like a 30-year history in this, I don't know how many-year history in the space of Crescendo and now what you're doing or 20-year history. Do you see consolidation as a tool to, you know, do we need these as many 501c3s as we have? I'm just, as a curious question. I, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I, 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 my understanding is that there's like about 1.5 million charities. So 
Um, I think that in church world, and I can probably speak to that a little bit better, um, I would say that we are in a very interesting um, place right now within church world where a lot of those mainline denominational churches that that have been in existence for maybe, you know, 120, 150, 200, 400 years and, and beyond, um, that there has been a number of churches closing doors and then a number of churches that have begun to kind of by nature of their programming and by nature of who's the one who's the speaking pastor or their team of pastors that are speaking and they're quite good. And, and so they, their churches grow and grow and grow. In many cases, it does come at the expense of maybe a midsize or a smaller church that does have to close its doors and it begins to merge. Well, I would imagine that a lot of nonprofits out there kind of function similarly. I can think of a few that we've even worked with that has had leadership change. And because of the leadership change, that means, you know, something didn't happen quite right, or maybe a you know, a, a leader resigned or for whatever reason, they're no longer in the place of leadership that they were. And so now the board is trying to restructure and find new leadership. And, and oftentimes there's just this point of volatility or instability that goes along with the organization. And sometimes that opens up talks to, you know, maybe we do need to join and with, maybe we do need to merge with some other organizations that are thinking and acting like us. I mean, if, if somebody, if two nonprofits came to you and said, would, would that be something that you could strategically look at them and go, hey, you know what, I think I could help you. Be, I mean, given your background and your expertise and your knowledge and you t as a team with Kimberly, I, I mean, I see that as, I mean, I'm, I'm just talking kind of as a strategic plan. Because yeah. <laughs> again, the, the transfer of wealth, and we can talk about that until the cows sure. come home in over the next 20 years, the 30, 40 trillion dollars that's going to transfer. We all know, no, I mean, not that we all know that, but those in the industry know what's coming with the baby boomers, um, I, I just your business model is certainly ripe, and I kudos. Yeah, I mean, as far as our role, I would say that we stick to primarily the fundraising, gift planning space. That said, Kimberly was the uh, executive director for the Orange Catholic Foundation. Prior to that, she was with the Archdiocese of L.A. for a number of years and has a 30-year fundraising effort. And, of course, we understand that your CEO, your executive director, is going to be your chief, not only vision caster, but fundraiser as well. So, of course, there is a fair amount of experience that comes from the both of us to be able to maybe possibly navigate that. But I wouldn't say that's really our space of where we are uh, intentionally trying to, to work within. So let's make sure people know how to get a hold of you. What's the best way to reach you? Sure. Um, you just have to know how to spell it. Um, <laughs> but it is PleiadesNPA.com. Uh, short for nonprofit advisors, but NPA. So uh, yes, if you go to pleiadesnpa.com and maybe I can give you that link on the show notes or you can put it on the show notes for people, um, yeah. then that might, be, that might be the place to put it. But it's very simple to just type in and, and we'll kind of take it from there. So we, I know everybody's already, you know, is watching this going, what are the guitars up on the wall all about? So we <laughs> want to adjust that. And then... Also, 
I have become a pickleball fanatic, so you have to get down here to San Diego where this is being recorded so you and I can go play some pickleball. But let's talk guitars first. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Well, I, I'm anxious to talk on both. Um, the guitars, I, I will say that it's like, well, Andy, do you play? And the answer is no. Um, my children did. Uh, and both of them, actually, I have three children and two of them were were fairly proficient guitarists. One was much more of a technical guitarist. The other one was, I think, on her way to become the next Taylor Swift. Um, and, <laughs> you only can imagine. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and so. Yeah. So anyway, so both of them played uh, a lot and, and we pretty much had a fairly musical family and my wife is a harpist and I have a, uh, a vocal and, and operatic way, way back when uh, background. That, so you're not, are you the Partridge family? Have you guys actually gone out and we, we have <laughs> now anybody under the age of X won't know what I'm talking about, but Google the Partridge family. And yeah, that's right. That's right. We did have a little bit of a, a Partridge family experience uh, a few times, um, which was kind of fun. Um, Are you performing now or? or? No, I, I haven't performed for some time. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe karaoke and that's about it. I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but my anyway, so when we were in the process of, you know, giving all of our kids the boot and, and moving them on to their next stage of life and uh, all of them are doing well. And, and, but they decided that they weren't going to take all of their guitars with them. And so we had to figure out, okay, what do we do with them? And so this is pretty much the product of that. Okay. So they, they don't, they never come off that wall apparently, or for, for holidays, for holidays or anything. You know, it's a good question. I mean, we have more guitars that didn't make it on the wall. Um, so it's possible that they would likely get played, but honestly, I wouldn't want to play any of these. Well, Andy, I can hear the viral moment for you at, at the next holiday, the next gathering. They all get together, get those guitars off the wall, do a little two minute YouTube on it, on gift planning. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll come up with a little hymn or, or a little two minute uh, you know, Put it out there on YouTube. You never know. I mean, on reels, I, guess, I don't even know all the words because I don't understand all that stuff. But reels, I think, is now the thing is the is the short version of all that. So, oh, man, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Well, Andy, it's been an honor and a privilege. And uh, I also again, we, we you have to come down here because I know pickleball, come on my favorite things. Pickle, you and I probably, you know, what is it? Uh, mothers from another, whatever yeah, that's saying. Right, right, right. Because pickleball, IPA, beer, and smoked meat. Yeah. I mean, we have a smoker on our deck. Um, in the pickleball, uh, beer. I've actually COVID made me more of a wine person than a beer person, but sure. I can go. I can. I can be very <laughs> flexible with it. Well, you got some fantastic breweries down in your neck of the woods. Yes, we do. And actually, we're recording this in Vista, California, which has some amazing breweries right around us. So um, go ahead, summarize in the last minute that we have here, summarize who you are all about, you and Kimberly, and who you, where you're going with this, because it's fascinating. Certainly. The, the quick summary is that we are here to implement your plan giving program, and we are here to do it at a very affordable rate in comparison to trying to run it on your own. 
Um, there's usually about a five-year onboarding process to really get familiar with this particular space. And so you'll see the ROI that comes within about a year. I actually wrote a blog just on that very subject itself, that plan giving ROI starts about a year into it. Um, and this way you'll see the momentum and the traction that you need really in order to secure the largest gifts you'll ever get. And you'll find that one particular gift can show up and in, in the equivalent of seven galas worth of events and far less effort, <laughs> just far more precision in terms of how to approach it. But you'll find that you will never look back and you'll never fundraise the same way again. I promise you that. Well, Andy, thank you. I know Kimberly couldn't join us today, but I want to thank her too. I know you guys are a dynamic duo out there in the world of philanthropy. So I thank you for joining us today. This is Ron Greenwald, the Ron Greenwald podcast. Please listen to this podcast and share it. Share it with those that you know that have a passion for a charity, for a 501c3, to create a legacy and I encourage, I, I can't speak it to it enough to encourage people to do things why they can enjoy to see the fruits of their labor. I understand the bequest, but I also understand doing it while you are fully aware of your, and have capacity to see the benefits of what you're doing. So again, thank you, Ron Greenwald, the Ron Greenwald podcast. Make it a great day. <laughs>